Hello, I'm Paddy. I'm Neil. And welcome back to Invasion of the Potty Snatchers. What are we watching today? Today we're watching Touch of Evil from 1958, starring and directed by Orson Welles, with Charlton Heston and Janet Leigh. Okay, so why are we watching this one? Well, again, this is one of those films we remember fondly from our youth. We? I think both of us quite... Yeah, I actually did love this film. Um, What struck me when I was little watching this is the incredible opening shot, the three-minute tracking shot on it's just done on a crane. Yeah. And that's what I remember mostly. For me, it's confusion over what's happening. (laughs) Yes, there's a lot of plot. Yeah, there's a lot of who's who's done what to who now. Yeah, it's it's a film which it's a film which is quite hard to follow, definitely. Yeah, okay. So, touch of evil. Clearly, we need some evil biscuits. What have you chosen? I've chosen Oreos. They are the evilest of all the biscuits. They are disgusting. Why have you done that? Because it's a touch of evil. Oh, evil American biscuits. Got yes. You. Okay, so um, let's watch the film. Excellent. really sped along that was very intense wasn't it yeah and so seedy such such a lot of atmosphere i mean very sleazy the sweat dripping off orson wells's face looked very real and sweaty dirty sort of feel from it uh, it's really it's pretty grim actually the whole thing is very i mean it's a it's a it's intensely a film noir given the context and also the filming style should we Quickly overlap the plot? Yeah, let's run through the plot. Okay, so Vargas, played by Charlton Heston, is on hol- on honeymoon with his wife, uh, who's played by Janet Lee, in a border town in Mexico. To which he's dragged his poor new, new bride to, because he's going to meet some law enforcement people from America at a conference or something. But suddenly there's a big explosion. They're witnesses to the death of a prominent... Um, Real estate developer or something, isn't it? Yeah, Lineker, he's a contractor, right. whatever a contractor is. Uh, so he's a pretty big deal in that little town. Vargas is an observer because he's um, in law enforcement in Mexico, but he's cleaning up drugs on both sides of the border. And in fact, that drugs thing is quite important because one of the local people, one of the local criminal organisations, uh, the Grandies, run by Uncle Joe Grandy, yep. Uh, to start trying to threaten his wife to try and intimidate them because they want because Vargas has imprisoned the brother. But that's a side plot at the moment. At the moment, we're introduced to Pete Menzies, who's a sergeant who's very keen, very good at his job, and Captain Quinlan, who is awesome Wells at his sleazy, disgusting, horrible, nastiest self. I mean, mumbling, cigar choked up, sort of. Yeah, he's in a fat suit. Well, it's actually the, the the makeup in that suit pretty impressive. He's only 39, 40? Yeah, barely into his 40s. But and he looks absolutely haggard. It looks really bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, his character is supposedly a recovering alcoholic. He's not touched a drop in 12 years, but he certainly looks like someone. <laughs> yeah. And also we meet Hal Schwartz, Al Schwartz, uh, a lawyer, a DA. Yep, and they are now going to all investigate the murder of um, Lineker. Lineker. Instantly, there's a suspect in, in a young man called Sanchez who is in a relationship with Lineker's daughter, daughter and will stand to inherit. They suspect him, so they go and search the house. Uh, and at which point, Quinlan is obviously, from our perspective, framing 
Sanchez by yeah. planting dynamite in the place. We know that. And we also see that Vargas knows it too. Yeah. And so now he's got it in his mind. He's going to have to raise this up with the local law enforcement and the accused. Their revered captain of police, that he's dirty. This leads to a spiralling series of events which culminates with Quinlan and Grandy organising a kidnap and drugging of Vargas's wife and then taking her into a hotel room in a drug state and staging, framing her for murder. Yeah, Quinlan's sort of also double-crossing. He's out of his mind now. He's been drinking again. He double-crosses Grandy. He frames everybody up and thinks he's going to get away with it by just sitting in Marlena Dietrich's brothel, <laughs> quietly listening to pianola music. But Menzies, the, the sergeant, finds uh, the cane because Quinlan's made a mistake and left the cane, which persuades him to then go and help Vargas get the evidence he needs by wearing a wire. Yeah, you forget how much he's using that walking cane in lots of scenes to make it obvious that like, yeah. to associate it with him. I mean, he actually hits... Vargas with it at one point. Making yes, the point, doesn't he? He does. And then the confession. Yes, there's a confession and a shootout yeah. to end up. And uh, there's a lot of plot and it requires that you really follow it. It's very intense, very detailed. Very dynamic storytelling and a lot of intensity to every scene. Almost every shot is Dutch angle. So should we get into some of the visuals? Absolutely. For me, it's an intense film because of the way that they film it. But it's also really creative in the way that it tells the story. One of the key things, I mean, the thing that everybody remembers about this film, are the long shots, specifically the first scene. Should we go talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this is one that famously was sort of, was mentioned in the start of the player by Robert Altman like 30 years later. Where Altman outdid it by doing an eight-minute shot in the yeah. same way. Yeah. It's a three-minute shot which starts, opens on somebody setting a timer on a bomb for three minutes and then the crane pans up and we follow couple an older man Lineker and a dancing and a much younger woman probably a dancer or a stripper or something into the car we follow the car and as we follow the car we then meet another couple Charlton Heston and Janet Lee who are the Vargases clearly very happily newlyweds strolling in the um in the evening. In the seedy evening space. It's well, they're going from Mexico to America, aren't they? Yes. But it a, is very seedy. It is very seedy. And we see there's lots of police around. There's lots of action. It's really hectic and, and vibrant place. And everybody knows Vargas. All the promoter guards are like, oh, you're the famous lawyer. Yeah, so we're getting all of this story information that we need, that we're at a border town, that Vargas is a, a serious and important law enforcement official. We know all of this without anything being told. And we also know, and the tension is quite palpable, we also know that the bomb is going to go off at any moment. Yeah, it's a very tense scene. It's extremely well directed. You can see why, with all the problems Wells had with the studio taking this back at the end and re-editing, you couldn't touch that. No, it was fantastic. The, the tension, because that car keeps stopping and, you, and it's next to thousands, well, hundreds of people and next to the border guards. And So when it does go off? It's kind of a climax we've been expecting i don't know how to how to quite phrase this it's a unexpected surprise it's still shocking yeah because it cuts straight away from that kiss yeah it's it's like there's a romantic clinch and boom everything's ruined yeah the other really long shot because there are two of them but this one is less remembered but possibly more crucial 
to the plot. Yeah, so this is where all the law enforcement go to visit Sanchez and they're raiding his house and they're searching the place. And Vargas happens to go into the toilet, knocks over an empty box, which then later Quinlan tells him has got um, two pieces of dynamite in yeah. and therefore the kid is guilty. This shot, this this particular shot, it's about five minutes. It's, it's, it's almost as long as a, a reel can be. It, it's it's a very long take. It's it's almost imperceptible. You don't really notice that they've all come into the room. They're all talking. There's lots of business going on. Heston's doing his very bad Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> you really got offended by that. <laughs> well, it's a uh, it's it's worse than my accent. So yeah, well, that is, I don't know. Your accent's lovely. Um, the thing is with that set. It's it's it's, set, it's made it's filmed on a set, which is unusual in this, in that there's most of it's filmed on location. But that set is very clever because they can track the camera into all kinds of positions. The camera's on a crane, I think, and they move it seamlessly around. Absolutely, I know you were saying that they're probably pulling the set apart to allow its movement through. The actors having to do all their business, and apparently they weren't given marks. They were told they they rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed until. They got this, and the camera was responsive to what they were doing, which, again, really unusual. And it's delivering huge amounts of information. It's vital you understand who everybody is, what's going on, and it delivers on everything. It does, but it's so hard to follow. It's so it's, it's pacey, and everyone is speaking over each other. It's natural in the way that it comes across there. Certainly for a film of its time, it's very much more naturalistic at times, isn't it? With people over-talking each other, interrupting and so on. It's it's unusual. Yeah. I had a recollection of, of Charlton Heston being really wooden. But he's not that bad. He's not bad at all, in fact. He's, he's just an action movie actor. He's not Gregory Peck. <laughs> he's not that wooden. He's not. It's the style of acting that morphs into Bruce Willis. Yes, this kind of I'm not going to emote because I'm very, very macho and I'm tough, but actually I have a sensitive side. I'm just only going to... Yeah, it's a physical form of acting, which not an emotional form, perhaps. Is that a, is that a reasonable thing to say? I think so. I mean, yeah, he's at, he's at his best. I think mm. they're all at their best during this sequence because they're all listening to yeah. each other and taking care of the things, and it, it's very good. And the visuals here where he's moving the angle of the camera and moving things around and the brilliance of using mirrors and shooting through things, amazing. Love that scene. That's my favourite bit of the film. I know that most people will remember the, the opening shot, but that piece is a tour de force. I, I don't think people realise that it's a single shot because you get everything you normally expect, but it's just no cuts. Yeah. It's not cut to him in the bathroom. It's not cut back to them. It's the camera's prowling around, moving back and forth. Apparently, the executives on the day were terrified. They thought Wells was spending way too long, had gone two days behind shooting schedule. By the end of the evening and everything's wrapped up, he's one day ahead of schedule or whatever yeah. it was, and they're happy as Larry. On the subject of the visuals, and moving away from studio executives who are sharks, and anyway, yeah. there's so many low-angle shots. Why do you think we've seen so much of that here? So there's a lot of emphasising the bulk of Quinlan. Orson Welles is using a fat suit to really double up on his size here. And they mention how many candy bars he's eating because <laughs> yes. he's no longer drinking. But it also emphasises um, Vargas's authority as well, I think, doesn't it? It's, yeah. And then everybody else crowds into a scene. And you, they still stand out because they're so much bigger than everybody else. Now, Heston's a very tall man, and Orson Welles is just enormous in this. He's, I mean, physically enormous, as well as 
the presence of the thing. The other thing that's used is Dutch angles, putting the camera on a tilt. That's This is specifically done to the best effect when they've drugged Janet Lee, uh, Mrs. Vargas, and they're framing her for the murder. That whole murder scene in the hotel room is filmed on a wonk. Yeah, it's all um, to offset, um, to upset your sort of um, view of things, isn't it? Yeah, and they do that a few times. And that, that mad party bit, which we'll talk about later probably, is also filmed slightly skewed. So those visuals, but not just the visuals in terms of the clever camera trickery, the lighting and the use of depth of focus. There is a really deep focus throughout that film. Yeah, I mean, you can see everything going on in the frame right back to people moving up through from the distance into the foreground. There's so much um, contrast as well, isn't there? There is. Do you think that this depth of focus is a way to compensate for the fact that we're talking, uh, we have, we're doing long shots, so people are in different positions talking all the time, so we need to have that? Or is it actually a stylistic choice? I suspect it's both, isn't it? There's a lot of filming on location. They're doing a lot of it at night, so they're having to pump through the scenes. So you've got to get people together and shoot all at once, haven't you? In yeah. mid-shot, long shots, rather than... There's very little close-ups until the very end, I think. And that's then actually that's a good point. They don't do a lot of extreme work, of face work until right at the end. The next thing, yeah, you mentioned the contrast. The lighting is so stark. It's like the Maltese Vulcan, which we did talked about in our first episode, in that they use chiaroscura, real heavy contrast between the dark and the light to really bring up focus on particular characters at particular moments and using lights that dash across the screen so that you get flickering shadows and things. Really cool. Also, do you notice how many, there was a little period, so many reflection shots, so many shots through. Oh, lots of mirrors, lots of looking into mirrors. Lots yeah. Of, um, yeah, lots of uh, work through oh, stands and things, yeah. isn't it? always think that's just the camera the camera operator and the director of photography showing off, but I love it. There's also a great sequence where uh, Vargas and Schwartz are in a car speeding along the back streets discussing major plot points. That seemed a very dynamic oh, visual God, it was shot. so good. I don't know how they did that. I don't know if they actually mounted the camera on the car or whether the car's on a trailer, or. but it's fantastic. They really get a sense of speed. That you don't you know, that you don't get from a back projection. Yeah, the urgency there. I mean, it's clearly real. Whereas every other film of the period practically is back projection, and it's stayed and like they're just getting through the dialogue, and it's like, oh, turn the wheel, turn the wheel back and forth. But it's not, it's not convincing, no, particularly this, nowadays. This is very convincing. Okay, so all of these visuals take such a long time to set up. Do you think that he perhaps sacrificed some of the, or there was a choice to sacrifice some acting performance in this? You get the impression that um, although most of the acting is quite, quite good, serviceable, serviceable, yeah, it's it's. Although we we'll get on to the parts that perhaps we don't <laughs> think are, I think for the majority of it, it's it's fine. But he is more focused on getting the dynamism across and the visuals. He is probably leaving them to do. I mean, half the actors in this are people he's used a dozen times before in yeah. films. He is leaving them to do get on with their own devices. But do you think that there's perhaps a lack of emotional depth in the story? It's a complex and convoluted story, but it's not one that focuses on people. No, there's not a great deal of depth to the story, really. And I think you could almost argue that everybody has a 
is at a tangent to the story. You know, Uncle Joe is the brother of somebody we don't see who's been locked up by Vargas. Right. So you're only told about his connection to it. Vargas and his wife are there by chance. Yeah. And interfering into a story where if he hadn't planted the uh, the dynamite, Vargas and his wife would have gone the next morning and been out of their hair. So Quinlan's made a big mistake. Here. Sure. I think the key relationship, if you were remaking this film, would be Quinlan and his sergeant, Pete. Menzies, be- yeah. Because Pete is the one who betrays. He's the one that has the Dam- Damascene moment where he realises that Quinlan is not just framing the bad guys, isn't just doing things to get rid of bad guys. He's just doing this to for his own agenda as much as anything, for his own power. And by association, he's guilty because he's always set him up as his uh, as his accomplice. Yes, without his knowledge. There's a, an attempt, a little bit of that at the end, but it's really so. That's just so rushed through. There's no moment where we see Menzies actually wrestling with a decision. He just is. I found this cane, therefore. Yes, there's no real struggle within him. So, I mean, there was a couple of nice shots of him obviously thinking things through, but really that end sequence is quite long with them on the wire talking about stuff, and it just doesn't feel that earned by that point, does it? No, it's something that just feels like it crops up and it is an ending. It feels like the plot is driving this rather than the characters. Certainly, um, Orson Welles got an opportunity to rewrite the script for two weeks before he started shooting because he was brought on by Charlton Heston who said, this guy's starring in this movie, why why doesn't he direct? I hear he's quite good. But in the rewrite, I think he's focused on the corruption. That's what brought him into it, apart from the opportunity to just play with some toys and like... Welles has always had an an, an interest in police corruption. It's interesting you mentioned that Heston... Charlton Heston came in and was the driving... He's really the reason this film gets made. He's on the back of the biggest hit of his career, isn't he? So he could have done anything. Yeah, I mean, The Ten Commandments is adjusted for inflation, one of the biggest films ever. So he's just made that. So he's red hot. He can literally do whatever he wants. And someone who was pretty much a pariah in Hollywood as Orson Welles. Acting, fine. Yeah, bring him in onto your pictures. But directing is a no-no. But Heston can say, I want him to direct. And he gets what he wants. Yeah. The rest of the casting, Janet Lee's great. Yeah. She's um, a big star already. This is pretty much the pinnacle of her career. I yeah. think this and the Vikings later that year. So there's uh, there's her. We've also got, uh, as you said, a group of actors who are close with Wells from previous projects, but Marlena Dietrich as well. Who's amazing in this film. Actually, yes. Playing the playing an old flame of, of Quinlan's. Yeah, I mean, very much more restrained performance, quieter, sort of um, full of melancholy. That's a great word. Love it. So she does come across. She does come across really well in it, particularly uh, compared to say her performances in things like Witness for the Prosecution. Did you think that she perhaps was a little bit hammy in those? Possibly. Well, she's playing up to to her perception in the public, whereas this is very much I'm a character. Yes. In this, so she sacrifices more of her star power to be part of the film, which is something that Wells can get people to do. There's also, I don't know if you saw, there's a little cameo from Jar Jar Gabor. Yes, there is, isn't there? Yeah, it's sort of a blast from the past, yeah. And Joseph Cotton as the coroner. Very small piece that he's in, but he's... uh, Tell us more about Joseph Cotton. So Joseph Cotton uh, was part of the Mercury Players Theatre Group that Orson Welles started in the 1930s in uh, New York. Uh, Old friend of Welles, star of... uh, of Kane, Magnificent Ambersons, and of course, The Third Man. 
We could have talked. We, we could have chosen to talk about the third man, of course, if we were talking about Orson Welles. I think this is one that's less well known. It's, I think, a more interesting choice for us to talk about. Because, for us to talk about, yes. Yeah, maybe not to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk about the things we didn't like in the acting? Shall we talk about the thing? Well, we, basically, Dennis Weaver. Basically, Mr. Dennis Weaver, ladies and gentlemen, who is probably forgotten about now, but in the 70s was all over TV and yeah, things. And, and Jewel, the first Spielberg. Yeah, he's the star of uh, Jewel Spielberg's first movie where he's the businessman battling with this truck driver. Yeah. yeah. Or just mad truck. I mean, it's a quite. A, um, maybe that's a film for another pod. Uh, or not. His playing the night manager. Uh, who is a young person who is, appears to have some kind of issues. Should we it, say learning difficulties? I think we're saying learning difficulties and also, or personality disorder or... A whole lot of things that he overplays, overacts and really disrupts the film. It's really distracting, the whole thing. And it's unfortunately also part of a sequence where they've taken Janet Lee's character into a motel. Well, this is for her own protection by the police, but... Uncle Joe's mob has found out that she's there. Because it's Uncle Joe's motel. Yes. And and yet somehow he doesn't know Quinlan. Well, he does know Quinlan. <laughs> yes. We know he knows Quinlan. Yeah. And then the mob guys who then go and terrify her, it seems, get her on to drugs and so on, played by young guys in leathers who are meant to be the young mob guys, and they're not very convincing. I think that might be something that's uh, our problem. Because we are from this era and back in that era, maybe that's what they look like, but it's not convincing to to our eyes at all. No, and the jazz soundtrack actually is quite distracting at that point. I I think I commented at the time. If they've taken the music off, just the imagery is very scary. It's, it's horror yeah. film scary. It is. It is. There's, there's, it is. It's kind of almost like straw dogs. Yeah, I mean, the implications of what's going on are, are, are quite horrific. They are. Obviously, they still can't show any of what's actually happening and they cut away but they cut away in a way such that it leaves you with little little to the imagination of what could be happening yeah it's very scary I think I mean it would have been a hard watch at the time yeah the music though is that again is this another one of our problems I think quite possibly I mean because we're expecting rock and roll and we're getting jazz yeah uh, and actually in a film set in Mexico you wouldn't you wouldn't get that either <laughs> <laughs> you might do it certain, uh, yeah. we don't know do we no but I, I really but it's, it's, it. <laughs> it doesn't look right from here no. it may look it may have looked different then but from now looks yeah. wrong yeah it looks wrong there so I think that was the weakest part of the film was that sequence and it's, cu- it's cutting back from the investigation to her problems and in that bit though Janet Lee's fantastic she's very good in that she's really portrays a terrified woman exceptionally well despite the fact that everything that's around her um in terms as an actor rather than the character everything that, that's around her as an actor is not what we would want to see it's not quite right to our eyes yeah and also uh she shouldn't really book into any motels ever <laughs> she doesn't it's not gone well has it? it it doesn't end that well you don't want to be the only person booked into a motel Again, for example. Well, she she, she didn't learn. She didn't learn. This is this no, no, is no. two years later. She's in with that Bates bloke. Yeah, we've talked about that one as well. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about Orson Welles. I mean, he's directed this film. He's 
the, one of the biggest names in Hollywood history. Why is he so influential? Why is he so important? Well, obvious starting point is Citizen Kane, the film he first directed. On the back of all his theatre work, he's invited to Hollywood to make this film, and it's just instant, dynamic, different way of making. He's 25 years old. He shouldn't be in charge of a film, and yet it's almost every aspect of it is success. And and quite controversial at the time because it's an absolute indictment of William Randolph Hearst, who ran Hearst Media and was in charge of so much of American newspapers and radio, yeah. all the mass media at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's like he puts himself in a very dangerous position by by doing that. He's also still got his fingers in very many pies. So he's on radio, he's acting, directing still, he's in theatre, and then he's moving straight into doing The Magnificent Ambersons. And yet he falls out of favour very quickly. Is that is there a reason for that? Is it to do with the way that he works? Does he upset people that he's working with? What happens? I think all the people he works with are quite happy with him. It's the studio execs who don't understand how this person's coming in at such a young age. Um, the arrogance, perhaps, that he can, he can say he can do anything he wants and tries to. Maybe he doesn't always pull it off. People detect that he's not actually as good as he says he is. Mm, that's interesting. One of my feelings, I haven't watched all of the Wells films, but one of my feelings is that he never gets an emotional contact with the audience. This is always about the story. It's never about the characters. That's particularly true for me in this film yep. and also in Kane, where throughout the film, it's look at how awful these people are. We don't feel for them at any time. Is that something that you would recognise? I think it's it, there's fleeting moments of um, recognition of, of people's state of mind, isn't there? The the kid who loves his sled in okay. Kane. But it's it really quick moments. There's the, Mostly you associate Wells with the cynicism of Harry Lyme in The Third Man. Well, you do, and that's a great portrayal, great acting. But that's not him directing, so... Yeah. I mean... It's, as, it's, as, it's easy to it's easy to mix up uh, an actor's performance with the way they might really be, but it really seems close to him at that mm. point for some reason. One of the reasons also that he falls from grace, as it were, is that he's quite self-destructive. He likes to party. Yeah. Uh, he takes all the money to make his third film in Rio de Janeiro and spends it on background plates and stuff that anybody could have filmed. He also divorced Rita Hayworth. Rita Hayworth was very popular, very powerful within Hollywood, and... Following that, he kind of self-destructed as well. Yeah, I mean, his weight balloons up. He's always been up and down. but um, So he restricts himself in certain acting roles. He's not going to play the romantic lead any longer. He also focuses on his own projects. And I think that's a huge amount of inspiration to a lot of filmmakers, isn't it? The way he drove himself to fund and make what he wanted to make. Yeah, he didn't do things for other people unless he wanted to do it. From my mind, throughout his career, he's making films which have a very visual, a very distinct visual style, which is harking back to early film noir. He he likes to use heavy contrast. He likes to pull out these visuals that we've talked about. He likes to do trick shots. Yeah, and, it, and a lot of it's in service to disguise the fact that he's not got the money to do much else. You know, I mean, he's having to take on all these acting jobs that he's self-financing his film projects like Chimes of Midnight and so on with. And it's um, 
if you can't actually record sound very well, <laughs> you know, you've got to do something visually dynamic to um, yeah, yeah, make your points. Summing up, let's talk about Wells quickly. He, it's obvious what his influence has been. You can see that, I think, in the rise of auteur directors in the 70s who look at Wells's work and say, but I can do this now, I can do this. And that leads to, or is partly aided by the fall of the Hollywood studio. Partly that, the fact that there's new technologies to take advantage of. But yeah, in a storytelling sense, it's a, a lot of influence from him. And also, if you look at French New Wave, that massively looks at Wells's work and says, we can use all of these ideas. We can make my, we can make our films our way using ideas like the crane shots, like the handhelds that he's doing, which are coming through in the 60s. A bit early for this one, but that's a big influence on the, the development of cinema as well. Can we talk about this film? How does it stand up for you as a modern piece? Difficult to say, isn't it? I think a lot of the that middle sequence is off-putting in some ways, but it barrels along. And it is so intense at times. It's like a fever dream, isn't it? Yeah. It's got a sleaze. It's got a realism that lives and would still feel modern. The acting is, I mean, it's good enough. I think people would recognise that it's old just from the way that the actors are portraying. And I do think that perhaps the jarring middle section and the need to really focus on that might make it hard, a hard watch. It's worth pointing out that we have watched the theatrical original. Uh, there are extended ed- editions that were made much later after Wells died, according to his instructions for how they should be edited, which we haven't watched because I think we agree that reputations are built on the first iteration of the film. Yeah, you, the theatrical release is the one that counts. When we go back and look at the 46 different versions of Blade Runner... <laughs> it's the first one with the voiceover that everybody remembers. Really. Exactly. For me, this is a film that I really enjoyed watching again, and I'm really glad we got to do it. Yeah, I agree. It was it was fantastic to see it again, and um, well worth the experience. Good. And uh, there aren't any Oreos left either. I think there's one. No, there's not. Right. Thanks for thanks for <laughs> thanks for listening. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back uh, with our tenth ever episode. A little bit of a change up. I think we're going to do our top five. We're films. going to do our top five films and then argue about it. Anyway, see you next time on Invasion of the Potty Snatchers. Take care. Bye.